Want to be the first to know when new Forces for Nature episodes come out? Sign up for the newsletter on our website, www.forcesfornature.com. You can find the sign-up link at the bottom of the webpage or in the About section. When you do, you'll also receive a free checklist of easy, practical actions for nature that you can start taking today. I can't wait to connect with you. I'm Crystal DiMicelli, and welcome to the Forces for Nature show. Do you find yourself overwhelmed with all the doom and gloom you hear of these days? Do you feel like you, as just one person, can't really make a difference? Forces for Nature cuts through that negativity. In each episode, I interview somebody who's doing great things for animals and the environment. We talk about the challenge they're addressing, the solution they have found, what keeps them going, and we'll leave you with practical action tips so that you too can become a force for nature. Having an eco-friendly lifestyle tends to require conscious choice making on a daily basis. However, there are a few things that you can do which are sort of like set it and forget it. You could choose a renewable power source for your home, you could buy an electric car, and how your money is invested is another one. If the places we work for offer a 401k plan, we often check it on the street and forget it. Or if we invest with a broker, we are offered what they say fits best for us, and then we just hope it all works out as they manage it. Turns out, though, if you look carefully at what companies the money is going to, it can often, without us even realizing it, go to industries that might not align with our values, such as fossil fuels, arms, and nuclear weapons. Today I'm chatting with James Regulinski, co-founder of Carbon Collective, the first investment advisory firm solely focused on solving climate change. I was excited to talk to him because I've been on my own personal journey trying to learn about sustainable investing. He had so much insight to share and offers a lot of food for thought. This is not meant to be financial advice, but I do hope you get out of it as much as I did. Thank you so much for joining me on Forces for Nature. It's so great to have you. Crystal, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's get started. Of all the professions, why did you choose investing as your way to solve climate change? It was not an obvious solution for me. So I'm an engineer by probably by both training and predilection. I tinkered a lot growing up. I actually grew up on a sailboat, which has a lot to do with why I chose sustainability in the first place, because of the connection with nature, the limitation of resources, the way in which that the, the forces of nature are incredibly prevalent, and you feel very small when you're on a sailboat in the middle of the ocean. But it also meant that I would tinker around with the engine on the boat and help my family fix things when they broke. And that kind of probably set me down the path of building things. And I went to school for engineering at a small engineering college and focused on sustainability. And my first few jobs out of college were building like gasifiers that helped convert agricultural waste into renewable energy as a way of sort of closing the loop and providing baseline power. So that was like the kind of work I was doing. It was very technical, very focused on technical solutions to climate change. And I did that for a while. And I think the big transition happened when I was working on a startup that was building sensors for shrimp farms, trying to make them more sustainable, use less resources and provide less waste because they're a big problem. And But I was reading Project Drawdown and Project Drawdown lays a path forward, a very positive look forward on all the things we have to do 
to get to a point where we're pulling more CO2 out of the atmosphere than we're releasing, which is an amazing thing to know exactly what we have to do. Now, it's also terrifying because it's a lot of things. But none of the things that they talk about in that in this model, which is a model that's done in collaboration with over 100 engineers and scientists, and they built this model out, and none of the things in the model were technologies that we didn't already have. So I'm working on new technologies as an engineer being like, ah, oh, yes, if we build a new technology, we'll save the planet. And they're saying, no, we have all the technologies we need. What we need is to redirect our focus as a global community to use those technologies we built and sort of imagine a different future. And when it comes to imagining a different future, engineering is not the forefront. There's some inventors who who talk who sort of can paint a picture of like what wor- the world will be like that's better in the future with a new technology. But as far as like how do you collectively create a vision for people to follow? How do you mobilize people? How do you start building that change? Engineering's not the top of that list. So it wasn't the skills that I had been drawn to initially that seemed like they were going to make the changes we needed to see on the time scale that we needed to see them. Now, that's not to say that there aren't brilliant people out there whose technologies will help us get to these solutions faster. And I think they're doing incredible work. But I am not going to kid myself in thinking that I was the right person to do that. And the skills I built in entrepreneurship, in, in you know, running companies and finding investments, these all started to come to bear into this realization that we could create a product that helped people in their personal lives change how they're investing that would then scale up into filling this gap. And the gap I ta- we're talking about is if you look at Project Drawdown or really any other model where we get below, we stay below 1.5 C or stay below two degrees C warming. And you look at how much money we need to invest, which is a proxy for sort of collective effort. What do we believe the future should look like? When you invest in a home, for example, you're saying that home values are going to stay high, that this is something that people will continue to want. When you invest in renewable energy or in any of the decarbonization technologies and closed-loop economy, et cetera, you're saying that these are the, the spaces that will grow. These are the spaces that have value and will continue to have value into the future. So you're, you're making a, a claim about what you believe in the future. So we are helping people, realization that we can help people connect that vision of the future and their actions today. So that was a that was sort of like a, a powerful realization. And it, it came also in part, now, of course, I said it was from Project Drawdown at the beginning, but another part was I was trying to invest my own money. And I've been trying to do this in a sustainable way since I was in college. I've, I've invested in probably half a dozen different mutual funds that or or ETFs that made claims about how ethical they were as a like way to deal with this tension that I felt where on the one hand, it was unwise not to be investing. It was a, it was sort of hoarding your money in a way, way that wasn't good financially and wasn't good like you were, you were making a dumb decision was sort of the meta conversation happening by my peers. If you invest sustainably. Since I was a kid, I was told if you don't invest, you're losing money through inflation, et cetera. And that's very relevant right now. And there's this idea that from the social groups I was in that you should be investing. And I, I bought into that idea. And I still think that there is, there is value in that idea for different reasons now. But it was a tension with this idea that a lot of the companies I saw, I didn't see their actions being consistent with the kind of world I wanted to live in. The type of extraction that was happening, the type of sort of blatant disregard for human and animal well-being, these things were not how I wanted to be making money. And to some extent, that's what you're doing. You invest in a company, you're, you're giving your, 
your life's energy over to another company so that they can create more of whatever they create. And in often cases, that wasn't beneficial in the way I want it to be. So I had that I had that tension. I think a lot of people feel this tension, which is how do I not fall behind in this economic system that's set up for, you know, to extract as much from people, individuals as possible? How do I not fall behind? But how do I do it in a way that doesn't compromise who I am and what I believe? And I didn't find a lot of good options up until the point where we started Carbon Collective, where we chose a theme. We were like, we, we, we are going to focus on fighting climate change and we're going to do it through investments. And we're that's going to be our focus. And we are going to go into the weeds and ask all the hard questions and sit with those challenges so that it can be a little bit easier for other people to do the same. Yeah, I, I completely can empathize regarding the... I myself have been on a journey as well, trying to learn about investing and how it helps or hurts in climate change. Because I don't want to be sitting here making all these personal changes for myself, either driving less or reducing food waste or, you know, all of the other things that you can do to help slow down climate change. But then whatever, wherever my money is, it's just contributing to climate change because the companies then in turn invest in fossil fuel companies or in practices that I that I don't value. So I can completely empathize with with what you're saying. And for many years, I well, I would say in the past, this way of investing, like trying to invest, quote unquote, sustainably, had a reputation or a better way I can say it is a misconception that you would get lower than average returns. Has if, if this has changed, why and what are the prospects for the future? Ah, that's such a good point. When I was going back to the story of like trying to find this in college, the recommendation I got when I asked people, how do I invest sustainably was invest in the market and then donate the difference in performance to a just cause. And I thought that was so outrageous. You're like, do a bad thing and then, you know, make a donation to sort of alleviate your guilt. And that was consistent with a lot of thinking of the time, sort of carbon offsets had just starting to come out of the woodwork and like that path was developing. And and I think that folks just assume that we could go on doing essentially what we are doing. And there are going to be some, you know, weirdos who wanted to invest in a different way. So this is the advice they gave. That advice is flawed for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, the way we invest does matter, does have an impact. And the donations that you could be giving, you should be giving if you believe in them regardless. Like you shouldn't connect that donation to the way you invest. As kind of a salvation, like cleansing of your sins in a way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if you believe that that has value and you can afford it, absolutely donate to causes that make a difference. And investing is such a cool thing in that it's a one-time change you make. And then you don't have to think about it every day. When you choose to bike, when you choose to like whether to bring reusable bags to the grocery, that's a decision you constantly have to be making. And people get decision fatigue. We are putting a lot of burden on individuals to make consistent choices throughout their life in the most sustainable way possible. And while that's to the extent you can do that, that's incredible. And I applaud anyone who does. But I also understand everyone who fails to do that because it is such a big ask to have all of the burden of this change fall on decisions that have to be made countless times a day. And there are changes you can make that are big one-time changes. 
what kind of vehicle you own, how you power your house, how you invest. And making those shifts means that you can take this big part of your life and have it be in alignment with your values. But going back to what you're talking about in terms of returns, I think there are two reasons why you had this historical idea. One is there weren't a lot of firms doing it and they were kind of expensive to do. And the expense ratio creates a drag on your portfolio. So that's a really fancy way of saying, if you pay a lot more in fees, you make less money. So that's part of why I think that these funds had a lower return. The other reason is I think there wasn't as much scrutiny around asking this question, just assumed that that was the case. And because the financial world assumed it was the case, wanted it to be true, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. There was no one there who said, this is so important that I'm going to figure out how to make it work. Everyone was saying, this is a niche thing that a few clients want. I'm going to hand them something. And that's what we saw with ESG investing, which is a big misconception. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And people assume it's the measure of a company's goodness. It's not the measure of a company's goodness. MSCI, the largest data provider for ESG, says that on their website. This is not the measure of a company's goodness. This is a economic hedge against these three risks. An economic hedge against those three risks is not the same thing as we are trying to build a world in which we solve climate change. We are trying to build a world in which there is equitable governance and that there is social responsibility to other people. And when we hear those things, we often assume we want it to be that. And the financial world as a whole, because they've been doing their thing in their own way for so long, and they have so much money to be made by keeping that system constant, they don't, they're not incentivized to make a change on this. They're not incentivized to scrutinize everything else they're doing and ask the question of, is this ethical? Is this right? Should we be participating in it? So there's a mismatch in what they're providing and what people actually want. And so when we looked at the space, we said, what do we want? What do we want the reality to be in the future? And we built our portfolios around the creation of that reality. And there's a couple different ways we did that. And the future will only tell if they're actually the same performance because most we haven't been around that long. And we had to do back testing for further back than now two years. So I can't say that we have fully matched the S&P 500, for example. But our portfolios, both in back testing and in and sort of recent trends, they have matched a market tracking portfolio, at least our core portfolio, which is designed to do that. And so we think that it is possible to build portfolios that are funding the kind of change we want to see in the world without sacrificing financial performance. And in part, that's because a lot of the technologies now that exist to make this transition happen are cost effective. They're not just better for the environment. They are economically better than some of their peers. And it's easy to forget this when we look at oil and gas because those industries have been so heavily subsidized that money has already been spent. We don't see that as a drag on their economic feasibility, but it was a bunch of money was put in to make them work. And if you don't factor that in, then you think that oil and gas has performed a lot better than it has even in that reality where they've been heavily subsidized and renewable energy has been only a fraction subsidized as well. Renewable energy is often the more cost-effective solution. So given these, these changes that are occurring, and this is happening on a number of fronts, this is happening in renewable energy, in clean transportation, in agriculture, we're starting to see this inflection point, this shift, which is at an even more exciting than just track the market kind of shift. Those technologies have the potential to start outperforming to become the new dominant paradigm. And 
while I'm not going to be giving any investment advice on this show, I will say that we are looking forward to that future because to solve climate change, we do need these technologies to take off in a way that is exponential, that is not just a, a linear adoption. And so how does Carbon Collective work? Are, are you investing in those renewable energies that you were just mentioning? Yeah. So let me walk you through how we built our core portfolio. This was the first thing we did when we said we want something to replace the conventional wisdom of investing, and we want to do it in a way that meets our view for how the world should be. So the core portfolio is that you take the total market, all the companies on the stock market, and you cut out the high carbon industries and the oil companies. These are the worst of the worst. There's no way in which we solve climate change and continue to invest in those, those companies. Then you take what you have left, it we call sort of the low carbon economy. These are companies that are kind of agnostic to the change. If we switch all to renewable energy and electric vehicle fleets and smart buildings, et cetera, these companies, it's not going to change their business model. But those companies still should be taking climate action. So we have to use our shareholder pressure. We have to use shareholder activism to push these companies to move faster. That's the, the pressure part of our philosophy. And then the final part is... We need to be proactively investing in companies that are building the change that we need to see, not just cutting out the worst of the worst companies. So we cut out the bad actors and we replace them with the companies that are building climate change solutions. Now, the Climate Change Solution Fund, that section of our portfolio, is built up by taking Project Drawdown's work, which is incredible work, and they identified all the technologies we need to be investing in. And we found all the publicly traded companies that are working primarily on one of those technologies. So we don't include companies that build, you know, gas turbines, but also make a few wind turbines. Investing in that isn't going to speed our transition to wind energy there. So they have to be primarily working on that. And this, this solutions fund is kind of cool because it's not just a clean energy fund. It's not just like an, another iClean. It's also in, you know, grid infrastructure. It's also in clean transportation. It's in agriculture. It's in sort of meat alternatives. It's in the closed loop economy. It's in all of those different solutions that sort of span the, the space of, of human activity that are, you know, dramatically, dramatically better for the, for, global carbon emissions. So that's the solutions part. And that makes up our core portfolio. And it's a fair, it's like a fairly market tracking portfolio. Now, if oil does incredibly well because people's fear about a war in Ukraine, it's not going to perform as well because we don't have oil companies in it. And that's a, an additional risk. But for the most part, it does track the market. And that's really cool. Now, I want to add something else. We are focused on climate change. That's our foremost part. But we do also exclude any meat companies. We exclude any tobacco companies. We exclude any private prisons. There are some things that are not worth investing in. We don't want to see them in the world. So we do create some hard filters that are just sort of, there are common decency filters. We're not going to invest in nuclear weapons. We're not going to invest in, in arms. Like, again, that's not the kind of world we want to live in. And if we underperform a little bit because of that, it's not going to be a lot and it's going to be worth it especially when you're investing in this transition, which has the potential to have a lot of upside. And I don't think a lot of people realize what they are investing in because it has some very undescriptive name that it includes things like nuclear weapons and arms and prisons and all those things. Uh, Getting into the weeds of your investment is, is complicated and people don't have the time or the energy to look into it necessarily. It's so hard. 
So there's been a big trend uh, towards what are called ETFs, which are electronically traded funds. They are kind of like mutual funds, except less expensive. And they're a collection of stocks that are wrapped up in a single ticker. So you might buy something like I, I used iClean earlier, which is an example of a ETF. And there are lots of other ETFs out there, almost as many as there are stocks. And they are they are little portfolios. They're collections of stocks underneath. But when you go and buy that, it's not obvious what it is. It takes a lot of digging to go find all the holdings. And most websites, if you even do a cursory search, only show you the top 10 holdings. But it means when I mean, you need to make, go make a decision about how you're investing, there's a lot of digging that goes in. And a lot of those companies are not well-known companies. The private prison companies are not like household names. And so you might just completely, through no fault of your own, miss it. And the companies that are selling you, if you go to like a Betterment or a Wealthfront or one of these other robo advisors out there and they sell you a sustainable fund, you're, you're going to have to trust them. And that's not great. And when we dug into them, we found a lot of things that were inconsistent, stories that weren't fully coherent with uh, what we believed a company that said they were focused on climate change or on ethical investing should have in their portfolio. You shouldn't have an oil company in a low carbon fund. It doesn't make sense. And when you go and buy that, it feels very dishonest to then go discover that. And that kind of greenwashing has burnt a lot of people in terms of their trust of the industry willing to deliver. So just as a, a call out to a great website and resource, if you're going to make the decision yourself, um, if you aren't going to work with someone like Carbon Collective, there's a group called As You Sow, and they make a tool called Fossil Free Funds. And if you go there, you can type in most mutual fund or ETF tickers, and it will give you a scorecard. It will tell you what's in there. It will flag certain things like oil companies, fossil fuel holders, weapons, manufacturers, et cetera. And it will help you sort of be able to dissect what you're actually buying into. So if you're going to go down that path, there are a couple tools out there that makes it a little bit easier to demystify. I have two questions from what you were just saying. When you were describing the way that Carbon Collective does their investing, so there's there's a twenty eighty split in there, right? Mm -hmm. Can you just clarify what that is? When we talk about the makeup of securities in the core portfolio, so in that section, whatever whatever your allocation is, to that section, let's say it's fifty percent of your funds are going to be in in equities, eighty percent of the market is what the low economy is. It's only when you cut out the high carbon industries, when you cut out those four highest carbon emitting sectors that has energy utilities, materials, industrial, this is where you have the Exxon Mobiles, the Shells, et cetera, in them, as well as other players that are sort of high intensity carbon. When you cut that out, that's only about 20% of the market. And we replace that 20% with the Climate Solutions Fund for the core portfolio. We also have a for people who want, if this is a supplemental investment or something, if they want to be investing just in the Climate Solutions Fund, that's what they're excited about. They can sign up for our climate only portfolio and we do a mixture of green bonds and the climate only solutions. And it's a much more volatile portfolio. It's not necessarily going to be a good fit for all of your investments. But if that's if that is something that's really important to you or you do want to supplement something else you have, it can be a really great option. So those are the two things that we offer this sort of total investment solution option, and then this more niche product. Okay. And we'll get back to that 80% of the low carbon market in just a minute, because I have another question regarding them. You've been saying robo-investors, and they're online investors, essentially. 
mm-hmm. correct, like clarify if if I'm misspeaking. And even and there there are ones like you were saying that are claiming to be eco friendly, but how can someone discern between the legitimate spaces for investing and those that are not? So when you're choosing uh, who to trust in the space as far as what is environmentally friendly, I think looking at what their philosophy is on how they choose investments is core. You can double check anyone's work. They'll tell you what they're invested in. You can go and check all the stocks. But if you don't have time for that, which a lot of people don't, you're kind of back at square one. So the question is, how did they make their decisions? You can also do a few spot checks to see if you agree with them. This is like the, is ExxonMobil in the portfolio? Is it labeled as a low carbon or climate friendly portfolio, and yet it's investing in fossil fuels? That to me is a red flag. Now, not a lot of companies share their methodologies. So to me, that's the first flag you should look for. I say this in part, I'm very biased. I've created a whole platform and we, we publish everything we do. We have, if you want to look at the methodology, if you want to look at why a sector is in there, if you want to look at why a particular company is in there, it is all on our website because we believe that the industry has sort of used up the good faith of, of individuals and have proven itself unwilling to act in a primarily environmentally ethical way. And so instead of saying, trust us, we're, you know, we're not them, we're trustworthy, we're just going to show you what we do. And you can, from there, if you like the process which we go through and trust that process, then we might be able to earn your trust as far as being your investment advisor. I do think it's worth digging. The SEC has also started to regulate this sector more as far as making the claims about being ESG, about being climate focused, et cetera. And other rating organizations, Morningstar just unlisted a whole bunch of uh, ETFs that had claimed to be environmentally friendly, and they decided that they didn't meet their standards. So there's both industry, you know, within industry and sort of external government regulation, both pressuring the space to become uh, clearer and more accountable. I don't think we're fully there yet, and I'm not sure that those regulating bodies will ever get us to a level that most of us, most of us who care deeply about this space would trust. But we're, we're headed in that direction. I think we'll see at least more consistency with reporting. So those are sort of my two, my, my over, my overarching view on, on how you choose that. I do agree. I I think that as time goes on, it's going to become more transparent because people are demanding that. And rightly so. mm -hmm. And you and you mentioned ESG before, which is something that the more I learn about, the more I'm feeling disenchanted with because it sounds like greenwashing. To give fairness or to give credit where it's due, back when it was first released, it was pretty innovative in the space. But times have changed a lot since then. And just further adoption of something that was was built for a different time in a different space is not going to be enough. So I think we're ready for the next wave of ethical examination of investing. Now, what would you, I think you, you may have mentioned this, but I'll ask anyway, what are the risks of investing in this space as compared to a more traditional portfolio? Yeah, I think asking the question about risks from putting on the fiduciary hat, as as they say in the industry, there are risks that go beyond even in our type of portfolio where it's broadly tracking the market, it's still widely diversified. You're exposing yourself to this sector because we're more heavily weighted on renewable energy, on a, a whole host of technologies. But even so, when Build Back Better was looking like it was going to pass, a bunch of the companies in our portfolio price went up substantially. 
because everyone was thinking that there would be government subsidies and funding and support for this kind of infrastructure. And then when it didn't pass, those companies all fell. And that risk didn't exist, strictly speaking, for the market as a whole. Now, we don't believe in our investment philosophy. We're not picking individual stocks and saying that these are going to outperform the market. We're saying we buy and hold because the market's going to tend to go up. And these industries we think in the long run are going to tend to go up if we get serious about solving climate change. A lot of them are going to go up regardless if we get serious or not because they're economically better. But as a whole, as we make this transition, they will do well. Now, that does not mean every year they're going to do well. And that does not mean that there won't be political risk and sort of regulation risk and these other risks that exist. Those will will be exposed to those. And if oil gets, if we have things like a war that cuts the oil supply, or if we have new regulations or, or monetary support of expansion of fossil fuels, People are going to see that as a cut to renewables, even if they still are more economically feasible in the long run. Mm. So that was, I was going to ask you, with this terrible war that's going on in Ukraine and the pinch that it's putting on fossil fuels, we, we're seeing governments backpedaling on their climate change commitments. Like the mm-hmm. U.S. just opened up federal lands to to some leasing and you you basically did just say that it can negatively affect the investments of climate change. I mean, I personally, maybe it's just, well, no, I personally believe that the world knows now that climate change is a huge problem and we are going to, we're moving in the direction of, of solving it. And anyway, let me, no, let me is, backtrack I think, myself. I think Go ahead. I can respond to what you have already because what you said is, I think, incredibly important. And there are three main points that I I heard in there. One was the backpedaling of of climate commitments in terms of backing and supporting fossil fuel companies. The second was the global trend that we know that this is a really big problem. And those two elements in there sort of say what our long-term view of investing is. The first one is that because we know this is a problem and Governments are going to continue to take this seriously. Climate change. Uh, climate change seriously. And talk use the, the solutions that are, are known, proven, carbon-reducing technologies that those, those sectors will continue to grow in the long term. We have seen some backpedaling in terms of climate commitments. But if you look at them, it's a little more nuanced of a story in several ways. One, countries like Germany, which are heavily dependent on imported gas from Russia – while they do need to find other sources for that natural gas, they're also now exploring and looking at how do they get off of natural gas altogether. Now, they've been looking at that for a long time, but on sort of the longer term, not the immediate term because they're scared about a recession, but in the longer term, they have more foresight and planning into that transition. So right now, oil prices are high, but if Germany can get to a place where it's fully off of natural gas, that is a pretty significant place to be. And so in by 2030, if they're hitting their targets for uh, carbon reduction, that's going to dwarf the, the kind of infrastructure that is changes that are happening. If you look at the question about the leases on public lands, I think that one's a little misleading. Oil companies already own so many leases on public land for oil rights that the new leases are like a drop in the bucket. They almost don't matter. The number of reserves that are contained by oil companies existing would put us past our climate goals several times over. So while it sucks that 
we there's so much so much resource and time is being put into oil companies talking about how they need to have more resources to be able to prevent this energy crisis, which they are not doing because it is not in their economic interest to keep gas prices down or to increase supply based off of any humanitarian crisis or need. It is they have explicitly said they will never do that. That is not in their shareholder interest. That is not in their personal interest. So there's no world in which us giving them more leases or more support is going to help reduce the, the price of gas or the, the hardship that's being put on people. So just sort of refocusing away from like the individual policy element sides of it and, and asking, what else is this pressuring for change in the long run? And I see some hope there. I see some, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that countries like Germany are going to see this as a a prod to accelerate their plans to be fully net zero. Yeah, and if if they are going to accelerate those plans, who who doesn't want to be on the ground floor of of those of that movement of those investments? Yeah, and if they're saying we need to build new gas terminals with a forty year payback and import gas, and you buy up that bond, you're taking on the risk that on a larger global scale that we we transition faster away from that kind of infrastructure. Investors will push for trying to get their money back on that. But the stranded asset problem where oil becomes obsolete, it's a really optimistic place to be, but that's what I'm that's what I'm banking on, is a big risk of investing in fossil fuels that isn't talked about. Now some argue that it's better to have a seat at the table. And so in other words, invest mm. in fossil fuel companies and as a stakeholder, you can engage them and encourage them to change in the same in a similar way that Engine One had done with the with the board of directors with Exxon, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. What are your a lot thoughts? Of news around that. Yeah. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? I applaud engine number one. And I applaud them because they had a theory of change and they acted on it. Whereas a whole bunch of investment companies were talking about you know, exclusionary filters and hedging risk, and they didn't have a view of how their investments changed the world. So on the front of taking a bold stand and then making it happen, I think engine one, number one, sort of pushed the whole space for it. Really impressed with that. I disagree with their theory of change. I do not think that having a seat at the table matters. I don't think we've seen it matter even in the case of engine number one's getting these board of directors elected. The change that ExxonMobil needs to take to be a proactive force in solving climate change is fairly drastic. And the changes that a board of directors is going to be able to do, I view as being very small. During that period, we saw the opening up of a massive oil reserve in South America that ExxonMobil did. This goes back to how much oil reserves do we have? Like, If this was all burned, it would exceed our, our global budget for carbon. We saw a, a sort of a not so much a doubling down, but like a continued pressure and lobbying around carbon capture and sequestration or direct capture, not direct air capture, but capture on, on smokestacks as a way of of dealing with the carbon emissions from fossil fuel burning, which we have a problem with because we have no engineering proof that we can get one of these systems working. We don't have enough space on the planet to store all the carbon we're going to be emitting. And it's incredibly expensive, both in R&D and in sort of time and resources. So there's like there's sort of a trifecta of like, this doesn't really make sense. And that's that's where they're going, as opposed to saying, no, we're going to use our expertise in in laying pipelines and in and in offshore oil platforms to do wind and green hydrogen and change over the energy economy. 
So we have not seen any indication that the electing of these board members have done any type of radical shift. So there's a question of opportunity cost. Where, as shareholder advocates, are we going to spend our time? Are we going to spend it on the Exxon Mobiles? Or are we going to invest in the companies that will make the Exxon Mobiles obsolete and spend our resources pushing the companies that we think will make a difference and a change? The Coca-Colas of the world. These other large industries that do have the fear of being perceived as you know not forward on these issues, so we can pressure them, and whose changes need to also be made. So our view is let's spend our, our shareholder ad- advocacy energy on those companies who don't have a clear climate mission but could be pushed to have that baked into their company, as opposed to trying to make the worst actors marginally better, which is questionable whether we can even get them there. That's where Carbon Collective ended up on this. And I imagine it's also a much slower push than than just making them obsolete because of all of the other technologies are, are so much more economical. There, we People hold up Ostred and a few other oil companies who did make the transition fully away from being oil companies as examples. And I love those examples, but I still see them as outliers. I don't think I'm even familiar with the name that you just said. Ostred, I think I'm saying that right. I think it's a Dutch company and they fully divested all their oil and gas reserves, assets, etc., and are now focusing fully on green hydrogen and offshore wind. Now, there's also things that could be outside of that. You could be working on thermal batteries and other technologies that oil companies could support on. Those were the ones that they chose. It's a fairly com- common argument, I think, because of the, the expertise in pipelines and platforms that these companies have, and those are what are needed for offshore wind and green hydrogen. However, they were owned, I think, 51% by the government. And so you had a government who was making climate commitments as an owner of the company. It's a slightly different situation than a company that's fully public owned in a diff- under different economic regulations. So in the US, there's a lot more laissez-faire, a lot more fear of any type of government involvement as sort of collective action in business. Whereas in Europe, the outlook is very different. The outlook on climate change is very different in Europe. So uh, there, there are reasons why I think that we won't necessarily see a wide, like this taking off in the space as what all oil companies do. But it is an example of that it's possible. And so we hold open the possibility that a company we formerly wouldn't have ever invested in does make it onto our climate solutions list because they reorient. And we think that's really important. We're not going to penalize a company for making a change, for making that dramatic of a change. Now you you said divesting, which maybe the listener has heard of, but they don't entirely know what that is. Can you clarify what divesting is? Yeah, in the in the financial investment space, it refers to no longer investing in a sector, in a country, in a technology, something. Often it's referred to for fossil fuel companies in particular. So to divest is to sell off all of your holdings in that. You can also, as a company, divest in terms of like your own holdings, whether they be oil reserves or platforms or other other physical assets. Now, there's a big argument in the space about how much good you're doing if you're selling off and someone buys it. So it's not like it's being retired. And there's sort of the like, if you had retired it, that would have been a far better use like hold on to that license for that that reserve and make sure it never gets burned and there might be a mark carbon market in the future where that has some value i don't know but there's just ethical value in having done that uh, however there's also an argument if the market is flooded with with these resources then maybe the price gets depressed enough and then 
you get into sort of a bunch of economic arguments on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in terms of climate change impact. However, I think for most people, there's sort of three reasons why we do this. The first is we just don't want to be making money from oil and gas at this point. You don't want to be making money from companies lending money to those who are making money from oil and gas. There's no way to feel good about your belief in climate change. There's no way to feel good about having an electric car and driving it or walking to the store or eating vegan if part of how you pay for that is from people clear-cutting forests to, to mine tar sands. It's just, it doesn't work on that level. The second is if we change the overall perception of oil and gas being a good investment, their ability to raise additional funds is going to be hurt. And if we penalize the companies who are lending money to oil and gas exploration and operations, then there's going to be a cost. Like financial institutions will have to make that decision of whether they're willing to take that risk about being, you know, having folks withdraw their funds as a result of their investment practices. And finally, when we do lower the share price, their ability to raise additional money directly from that is reduced. Their the compensation of the CEOs is reduced. Like you sort of you're giving a penalty for being in that space as opposed to a premium for being in that space. And so those three things together, I think, are valid reasons from an investment standpoint on how it can be good to divest. And if I ever get too technical in on this stuff, I'm now eating, sleeping, breathing, all of this. So if I like ask me, I, I do not need to sound smart. I'd rather be intelligible to most people. And I think it's a, in the industry, it's particularly bad. People will spend a lot of time and energy making themselves sound smart and everyone else dumb so that they're fearful and need, like feel the need to be paying lots of money for someone to take care of that fear. And I don't want to contribute to people being fearful of financing. I want to contribute to people understanding and feeling empowered to make decisions consistent with their values. No, I think I think we're we're doing well. But kind of pivoting from that statement, what would you say to a person who is uncomfortable with investing with an online company and not necessarily a real person? And you said that you don't have you're not from the finance background. So Right. So if you if you believe that you need to have someone with deep expertise in the financial world and you don't buy that mostly we should be doing buy and holds like passive investing, then like our investment philosophy might not be a good fit for you. That said, we do still have a lot of resources. We have the ultimate guide to sustainable investing. We have our entire climate solutions list. We put all of our resources out there. You can use them as an individual. Like you don't have to work with us. In fact, it's so important that we be closing this investment gap and moving this, I'm thrilled when people tell me that they used our resources, but invested on their own. Yes, it would be cool if they invested with us because that allows us to grow and have more positive impact and change. But like, it is so critical that we are doing this right now. It is exciting to me. So go onto our website, use that resources, use as you so's resources to figure out what's right. And you might not want to have an online only investment advisor. You don't want to, might want to be doing robo investing. This is if you like know how much you want to be investing and you're going to invest it in an automated fashion, that's when it's a good fit. If you need financial planning, if you need someone to like hold you through the details and complexities of the tax world and figure out modeling for your own personal life, we don't do that yet. And so that's also a valuable service that people offer. Now, I encourage you, a lot of those folks don't know much about sustainable and ethical investing, and they might not give you a lot of good options. So again, I would recommend you take the resources we have, 
get comfortable with them and bring your financial advisor if you choose to get an individual person into that space. Have them learn a little bit about what we're doing. Have them work with us or copy some of the things that we do. But, you know, it, it might take some education if you're going to work with someone who's deeply in the space and doesn't know, doesn't have as a broad or expansive a view about what you could do with investing. I so appreciate your your transparency with that. And I do remember seeing on your website, there's a safety net. So if somebody does want to invest with you guys, there's a safety net that, correct me if I'm wrong, but if Carbon Collective were to shut its doors, it's not like you lose your money. Like that money mm, actually mm. is being held by I forgot the company. It's like a very well-known company, yeah, right? Apex Clearing House is our custodian. A lot of people, when they when they hear about us, they're like, oh, you're a startup. Man, I, if the startup goes out of business, what happens? And our our service is an advising service, essentially. We're, we are investing on your behalf, but we are not actually holding the record of your investments. That is held by a third party who's massive. And they have a bunch of insurance if they were to go out of business, not against loss. If the market goes down, you're still going to lose money. But against like, you know, somewhere in the record, things going away, we're not going to be able to run off with your money in any way. And we use a third party brokerage for the transaction. So we are using established parties who are able to to do all this efficiently and effectively to make this portfolio reality for folks. And if we were to like say we're a small company, say like the, the worst was to happen and we were to all perish in a tragic bus accident, our anyone who has an account with us can call up the custodian, but they can get their money transferred to another hold like another custodian, investment advisor, etc. So the the money is never going to be fully outside of your ability to retrieve. Um, sorry, not never. I can never say never. There there might be some foreseeable, but all of the safeguards that the industry puts in place for the top tier organizations are also in place for us. But on top of that, we made a personal guarantee, Zach and myself as co-founders, as individuals, that if we ever have to shut down our doors for whatever reason, we're going to help all of our clients transition. They're putting a lot of faith into making this vision a reality. And that means that we have an obligation. Business is not this like fully transactional space. We're ultimately people and people have responsibility to other people. And so we take that really seriously. And so we on our website made that commitment, which I think is what you're referring to, that guarantee that we will, if we ever had to shut down our doors, that we would help everyone get to a place where they felt comfortable with their money. Okay. And you guys are yep. two years in, right? Just about, which has been a wild ride. It's been exciting. <laughs> These past two years in have so been a wild ways. ride. In so many ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so just to wrap things up, what should an investor look for when they're wanting to invest in, in a more sustainable manner? Like what, what can the listener do to make sure that they're not investing in things that aren't in alignment with their values? The first thing is to be about really clear about what your values are with yourself. Um, that's, I think that's the first step when we do anything that's sort of in an ethical sphere. And then to try to push that. To be like, okay, where's my line? Because we've had to ask this question a lot. We've had to ask the question of, there's a, a company that is one of the largest holders of renewable energy projects, and they're, you know, have also lobbied against power lines coming down from Canada that would allow for more clean energy into the space, uh, into you know, to, for New England to meet their energy goals. So, like, that's a question. Would you feel comfortable investing in that? Would you feel comfortable investing in a utility company that had coal plants, but had a plan and a track record of retiring them? 
So getting into the like the little details of what it means, because that is where you, you get clarity on what sustainable investing is. So that's like one part. That's a pretty heady response. And most listeners may not want to do that. The next thing I'd say is find someone who's in the space who is sharing how they invest and why that you agree with and work with them and trust them. And then if you're going to do it yourself, to use the tools available to to sort of peel back the layers of obfuscation so they, they can look in a little bit and just do that spot checking on whether the companies in there seem to reflect the values that are espoused. So those are like the, those are the really high level on practical stuff. As I said, as you so, it's a great resource. Um, we have the ultimate guide to sustainable investing out there that listeners can look at if they're trying to do it themselves and want different ways of thinking about the problem. And I think those are, those are probably my top recommendations. Like you mentioned before, Carbon Collective is very transparent in the companies that they are putting the money towards. And so you're able to see if, if those are in line Absolutely. with what you want. Um, also, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this a little bit. A lot of people do most of their investing through their companies, so the companies they work for. And one of the most tax efficient ways of doing that is through 401k programs if they're being offered. There hasn't been a lot of choice in the past. If you're working for a small company, a smallish company, or even now larger and larger companies, we're actually offering 401k services to those companies so that they can offer our portfolios and other portfolios to their employees. And if that's something that's exciting you, if you don't feel like you invest outside of your 401k, but you want more sustainable options, even if it isn't with us, you can pressure your company, your HR department and say, hey, where's the sustainable option? Why aren't these available? Like there are good opportunities now for this and we don't see that. And companies do listen to their employees. And so that's a way that you can kind of have a larger lever arm of change. If you get a whole company to to move over all their employees 401k, that can be a pretty impactful step. Great. James, this has been so enlightening. Thank you so much. Thank you for all that you do. You're making a difference. It's absolutely my pleasure. And I love what you're doing with this podcast. So thanks for bringing me along. It's frustrating to me knowing that I may unintentionally be negating all my climate-conscious actions simply by where I decide to put my money. This episode is in no way meant to provide you financial advice, but I do hope it gave you some food for thought and made you aware of things we so often accept blindly. There's still so much to learn, and I'd love to hear your take on it. Reach out to me at crystal.forcesfornature.com and let's chat. Don't forget to go to forcesfornature.com and sign up to receive emailed show notes, action tips, and a free checklist to help you start taking practical actions today. Do you know someone else who would enjoy this episode? I would be so grateful if you would share it with them. Hit me up on Instagram and Facebook at Becoming Forces for Nature and let me know what actions you have been taking. Adopting just one habit can be a game changer because imagine if a million people also adopted that. What difference for the world are you going to make today?